Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. I invite you now to turn to God's Word as we look together at this portion of the Easter story in Luke chapter 24. And earlier in the service, we heard that if Jesus' resurrection had not happened, then we would still be in our sins. If Christ is not risen, our faith is futile, Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 15. And that was precisely what Jesus' disciples thought had happened when they woke on that first Sunday morning. Still grieving, still confused as they watched the one in whom they had put all of their hopes, the one they thought was the Messiah crucified on the Friday before. But as the hours ticked by that Sunday, one report after another kept coming in to give them an uncertain wonder. Three women had gone to the tomb and returned to say that the tomb was empty and angels had announced that Jesus was risen. Peter and John had run to the tomb themselves and found it empty, though they did not see Jesus themselves. Mary Magdalene reported that she had met Jesus himself, and then two disciples that late afternoon or early evening said that they had seen Jesus and he had come and walked with them and talked with them on the road to Emmaus, and they turned around and ran back to Jerusalem to share the news. And so when it came to Sunday evening, as Jesus' disciples gathered in that upper room, I can only imagine what the conversation was like. Some were hopeful. Others were explaining these reports away, perhaps. Some proposing various theories. Some wondering what would happen next. Well, what happened next was that Jesus Himself came and appeared in that room with them. And here at the end of Luke 24, as Jesus speaks to His disciples that night, as well as in the days to come, Jesus declares both the reality of His resurrection and the significance of His resurrection. So let's listen in on the conversation as we read from Luke chapter 24. We'll begin with verse 36 and read through verse 49. As they were talking about these things, Jesus Himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, and they thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms might be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And said to him, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, 
and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am setting the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, how thankful we are, not only for the events described in the Scriptures, but that You would send Your Spirit to inspire Your disciples to write these words down, and that by Your Spirit You continue to speak through Your Word recorded for us. Would You be at work in our hearts this morning, for Christ's sake. Amen. When it comes to sports, my family and I particularly enjoy watching and playing basketball been watching a lot of March Madness lately, and I can tell you that I am just about in last place in my family bracket competition. But you can't follow basketball without having at least heard of LeBron James. He's probably the most heard of basketball player, and you might not realize that actually LeBron James and I have a lot in common. We, uh, we're both 36 years old. We were born just about eight or ten weeks apart, and we both grew up in northeast Ohio. In fact, his childhood home and mine were only about a 20 minutes drive from each other. We both have a daughter who's six years old, and on top of all that, he and I are both five foot nine inches tall or taller, and so <laughs> we really do share a lot in common. But growing up in Cleveland, I was watching LeBron James as he came to stardom in 2005 when He began playing there in Cleveland. Nike hung a banner on the Sherwin-Williams building in Cleveland. This is no normal banner. This banner was 25,000 square feet. It covered 10 stories of the Sherwin-Williams building on the skyline. And at the top of the building is the phrase that's now somewhat famous, we are all witnesses. And the point of the banner is that all of us watching LeBron James were witnesses to his athletic greatness. Now it's true, LeBron James' athletic feats are somewhat impressive, but they have very little lasting significance, as the city of Cleveland was wont to recognize when LeBron James left Cleveland and went to play for a different city against Cleveland, and the banner was torn down quickly. But in stark contrast to a 10-story, 25,000-square-foot banner on the edge of a city skyline, Jesus entered a small, locked room in the back corner of Jerusalem on that first Easter Sunday night and declared to His disciples, you are witnesses. Witnesses of nothing less than the most significant events in all of history. Witnesses of the events that spurred the unfolding plan of God for the world and for His people. And in our time together this morning in this passage, I want to just consider what exactly those disciples were witnesses of and why they were so significant. So as we begin, perhaps most obviously in these first verses, the first thing the disciples were witnesses of was the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus. Now, this was something that the disciples were not at all expecting. They should have been expecting it. And Jesus had told them at least three times that he would die on the cross and then rise again from the dead. 
But for the Jews in the first century, rising from the dead was something that happened at the end of history on the last day. And so if Jesus said, well, I'll rise again, the Jews would have said, well, yes, all of God's people will rise again on that last day. None of them had any frame of reference for a person rising from the dead in the middle of history. So it's quite preposterous to think that the apostles would have cooked up this story, that this is something that they made up, because it's not anything they would have expected or had any frame of reference to come up with. And so as this Sunday took place, and as these reports were flowing in from various corners of Jerusalem and various witnesses, the apostles were in in doubt and confusion. And even when Jesus appears in the room, the disciples are startled and afraid. And they thought they saw a ghost. But Jesus is not going to leave his disciples in doubt. He's not going to leave them wondering whether what they saw was real or not. Ghost or person. Hallucination, vision, or reality. Spiritual truth or actual physical resurrection. And so Jesus appears to them in groups. You see this repeatedly, that Jesus appears to groups of people. That one person might not doubt what had happened to them. They could check with each other. And not only does he appear to them as a group, the disciples here, but then he invites them to come and to touch him and to see him and to hold his pierced hands and feet. Jesus invites the disciples to use their very senses to verify that he is with them in the flesh. And you can imagine the scene, can't you? The disciples utterly astounded with no frame of reference to understand or to expect this but here he is in the flesh they can touch him they can hold him they can feel him they can see him hardly daring to hope that what they're seeing is real but clearly seeing evidence that it is is real overcome with joy the text tells us that they disbelieved for joy in other words this is the the disbelief that isn't refusing to believe but just can't understand how it's true thinking of that phrase and remembering a, a time when as a boy my family and I drove 13 hours from Ohio down to Mississippi to surprise my grandparents for my grandmother's birthday. We got there at about five in the morning and we went inside and, and we're all sitting in the living room with a birthday balloon when my grandmother came down. She woke up that morning and there was disbelieving joy. What are you doing here? How did you get here? Why are you here? That's the sort of disbelieving joy that we get here as the disciples see evidence of what is true. That the Savior, the one in whom they'd staked their hopes and trust on, is standing before them in the flesh, risen from the dead. But of course, Jesus doesn't get angry at the disciples at their slow processing. He calmly offers them proof of His resurrection. After letting them touch his hands and his feet and his side he then says do you have any snacks do you have anything we could eat and he's given a piece of broiled fish and and they eat that broiled fish together and he says a, a spirit doesn't eat food and so here he is demonstrating yet again that he is risen he is risen indeed And so it was that over those 40 days that Jesus was on earth between His resurrection and His ascension, while the the Pharisees were spreading the prearranged rumor that the disciples had just stolen Jesus' body, those disciples were actually eating with Jesus, 
talking with Jesus, holding Jesus' hands, learning from Jesus, and marveling for joy at the actual physical resurrection of their Savior. And this event is so significant because a dead Savior is of no use to us. A dead Savior cannot send His Spirit to change our hearts or unite us to Himself so that we might be raised with Him. It's impossible if He is not raised. And that's why Paul can say, we have no hope, we are still under the curse if Jesus is not risen from the dead. But the disciples were witnesses. Witnesses of the physical, actual reality of the resurrection. And they proclaimed what they had seen, what they had heard, what they had touched in Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth, that others also might know and believe and trust this Jesus who died, not as a parable, not as an example, but as God's substitute to take the penalty for our sins and rose, not not spiritually only, but rose physically in history to send His Spirit to unite us to Himself, to any who would trust Him as their Savior. This weekend, I got a text from Jeb Bland. Jeb is a member here at Westminster and one of our supported missionaries. He sent me a quote from a church historian. And the quote was this, If Jesus Christ has not actually risen from the dead, then nothing else matters. But if Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, nothing else matters. What a beautiful quote about the significance that Jesus is risen. That was the first thing the disciples were witnesses of. The second thing the disciples were witnesses of, and we see it here in Jesus' interaction with them, is the character of this risen Jesus, and particularly of Jesus' graciousness towards sinners. And I don't want to miss this significance in this story. Because if you know the Easter story, you remember what the disciples were doing the last time they saw Jesus. Mark 14 tells us that when the soldiers arrested Jesus, and Jesus didn't call down a legion of angels to disintegrate them, but was led away captive by these soldiers, the disciples all left Him and fled. The very ones who said they would never leave Him. One fled with such reckless abandon that he left his linen cloth in the hands of the soldiers and fled naked. Another followed Jesus into the courtyard, but at the mere suggestion that he was associated with Jesus, had denied him with vigor and was swearing. But we don't hear a whisper of those events from Jesus, do we? Jesus doesn't show up with a a rebuke. He doesn't show up with words of disappointment. Jesus shows up announcing once again, not a mere greeting, but peace to you. Come, touch me. See me, be assured, it is I. Here is their Savior announcing once again what He is bringing them. Peace, peace to you. He offers peace with Himself, their Savior who died for them out of His love for them, who fully forgives all their sins against Him. He offers peace with God, for His blood is the propitiation of all our sin, the thing that resolves God's anger and wrath and reconciles us to God so that we might be welcomed back into His presence with peace. If you think about yourself honestly, perhaps you know your sin quite clearly. Perhaps you know that you live for yourself 
rather from the, than for the Lord. We know the number of times that we sin against Him and one another day after day. Maybe, maybe you've been part of a church but have wandered away from, from Him. Maybe you have been living for yourself, abandoning the truth you knew. Maybe you've not been submitting to God and you wonder, would God really welcome me back? If those are your thoughts, look to Jesus' words here and know the warmth and the joy of the love of Jesus. The great 19th century bishop J.C. Ryle put it this way. He said, we see here one more proof that the love of Christ passes knowledge. It is His glory to pass over a transgression and He delights in mercy. Free, full, undeserved forgiveness to the very uttermost is not the manner of men, but it is the manner of Jesus. We see that here in this text. But Jesus also offers peace to us by His presence with us in suffering. Think how Jesus' presence changes the anxious grief of His disciples in this passage. Jesus, in His resurrection, is the living One who draws near to His people. You know, each week as pastors, we spend time praying through the directory for you as a congregation. And two weeks ago as we were praying, several of us were remarking at the burdens and the griefs that our congregation has endured. We may look polished and put together on a Sunday morning, but here among us are parents who have buried children. Wives whose husbands have left them. Children whose parents have caused them pain. Grandparents whose grandchildren have walked away from the Lord. We're a congregation that has known unexpected tragedy and deep pain and long-suffering. But all of this, do we know the heart and the character of Jesus who is risen and living Phil Riken put it this way. He said, For anyone who is grieving at a painful loss, for anyone who is anxious about the future, for anyone who is lost in life and looking for the answer, for anyone who feels rejected, for anyone who cannot fix what is broken in the hearts of the people they love, in every troubled sorrow, this text tells us that the living Jesus comes and says to you, Peace to you. What a gracious Savior who comes to us in our sin and in our suffering. The resurrected One who is with His people and announces peace. So The disciples witnessed the real historical resurrection of Jesus. They witnessed the gracious heart of this risen Savior. But thirdly, the disciples witnessed Jesus as the fulfillment of the whole Scriptures. And we see this in verses 44-47. to You look there and we find that Jesus is teaching His disciples. And it's almost certain that Jesus' teaching in these verses did not happen all at once on Easter night, but that these verses likely describe all that Jesus taught His disciples between His resurrection and the ascension 40 days later. And in that time, Jesus gave what had to be the most exciting Bible lesson in history. To have the Son of God Himself explain the meaning of Scripture to open their minds that they might understand God's Word. 
And as Jesus explains the Scriptures, the disciples realize that they are witnesses of the fulfillment of God's great plan of redemption, prepared and foretold through the books of Moses, through the prophets, through the Psalms, so that they realize that God has been weaving through all their history what would lead up to this moment. He has been foretelling through all of His prophets this moment. I love how Pastor Kent Hughes puts it. He writes, Jesus did not want the disciples to rest their belief in His resurrection on their personal experience. He did not want them to rest their faith on a miracle. He wanted them to ground their experience of His resurrection on the testimony and the perspective of Scripture. For it's God's Word and God's promises that are the strongest reason to believe that Jesus died and rose again as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. God had told His people this would happen, and then He raised Jesus as the fulfillment of Scripture. Now, we don't have the full record of Jesus' teaching here, but we have its outline. And thanks to the apostles' teaching in the New Testament, we can give a pretty good guess at some of what Jesus said here. It says that there in verse 46 that He explained from the Scriptures, that the Christ was to suffer. Where did He go in the Old Testament to show that? Well, maybe He went to Exodus chapter 12 and the Passover and talked about blood that would be shed that God might pass over His people. Maybe He went to Leviticus 16 in the Day of Atonement when the sins of the people were laid on the animal whose blood was then shed in their place. Or maybe they discussed Leviticus 17 where God says that He has appointed blood for the atonement of their souls. Maybe they looked at specific passages like Psalm 22, in which the Messiah is speaking and is forsaken by God, and His hands and His feet are pierced. Maybe they looked to Isaiah 53, where the servant of the Lord is pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And suddenly the Old Testament must have come alive to the disciples as the whole history of God's people opens up as a pattern pointing to the necessity of the Messiah's death and as prophecy in which God foretold that His servant would suffer and die for the sins of His people. Then it says that Jesus showed them from Scripture that the Christ was to rise again on the third day. Well, where did they look in the Old Testament to see that? Maybe Jesus took them to Hosea chapter 6 where God wrote, on the third day He will raise us up that we may live before Him. Maybe He took him to the story of Jonah, where on the third day God raised Jonah back from the belly of the whale. Maybe He pointed to Psalm 16, where God promises that He will not abandon His Holy One to the grave, nor let His Holy One see corruption. Or maybe back to Psalm 22, where that Messiah who is forsaken and pierced, then declares, but you have rescued me and I will tell of your name to my brothers. Maybe he went to many other passages in the Old Testament as well, but the point that Jesus was making was that the resurrection should not have been unexpected. It was exactly what God had been foretelling and showing his people all along. Of course, the Jewish people were not expecting it. This wasn't on their radar for the Messiah they thought was coming. 
So what a time of joy and excitement it must have been as the disciples started to realize what God had been telling them on page after page of the Old Testament that they'd never seen before. And God opened their minds to understand the Scriptures that all pointed to this Christ. And that Jesus, the one that they knew, had died and risen again in fulfillment of the Scriptures, in fulfillment of the plan of God. But Jesus doesn't just stop with the facts. Certainly our salvation rests on these facts. Without Jesus' death and resurrection, there could be no salvation and forgiveness of sins. But knowing these facts are not enough to save you. Maybe the famous words of James 2 come to your mind, where James reminds us that Satan very much knows these facts. Satan knows that God exists. Satan knows that Jesus died on the cross. Satan knows that he rose again on the third day. And that does him no good for it. He does not turn and repent. You know, statistically speaking, it is likely that there are those here this morning who know the facts of Jesus' resurrection, but have never turned and repented of sin and submitted their hearts to God through faith in Jesus. And so Jesus points, and you see it in verse 47 here, that the Scriptures not only foretell the facts of Jesus' death and resurrection, but also are covered from beginning to end with the message that calls us to respond to those facts appropriately. And the appropriate response is repentance that we might have forgiveness in His name. We are called to recognize that we are sinners who pursue our own way for our own benefit. And we are called to confess this as wrong. We are called to recognize that we cannot overcome our own sin on our own. And we're called to turn to Christ and ask Him to cover our sin with His blood as our only hope for forgiveness and reconciliation to God. And in some sense, the entire Old Testament is a call to repentance, to the promise of forgiveness. But perhaps Jesus pointed to Psalm 32 where David says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Maybe he pointed to Proverbs 28.13 which reads, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Or maybe he went to Isaiah 55.7 where we read, Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. And now, with Jesus having died and risen, this repentance and this forgiveness are to be preached in His name. Because as we read in Acts, there is no other name under heaven by which one might be saved. And the reason for that is simply that no one of us can stand before the holy judgment seat of God in our sins. And there is no other name No other religion that offers a sacrifice that can stand in our place and take away the debt of our sins that stands against us. And it is our turning from ourselves to trust in Jesus, the Son of God, whose death for us leads to the gift of full and free forgiveness that leads to salvation. And maybe there is someone this morning or someone watching online this morning that has never acknowledged the depth of our sin or turned to submit to God, trusting in Jesus for forgiveness. And if that is the case, 
then my prayer this morning is that you would know no peace until you come to put your faith in Jesus and find peace and the full forgiveness of sins in Him. Of course, there are many here this morning who have known this good news and heard it again and again, but this good news never gets any less good. And I love the way J.C. Ryle puts it when he says, the highest standard of holiness is nothing more than a continual growth in the practical knowledge of these two points, repentance and forgiveness of sins. The brightest saint, he said, is the man who has the most heart-searching sense of his own sinfulness and the liveliest sense of his own complete acceptance in Christ. So my prayer is that each of us would grow in our delight and our joy in the Savior this morning as we repent of sins and find in Him the full forgiveness that is offered in His name. Well, the disciples were witnesses that Jesus had fulfilled all that the Old Testament had been pointing towards all along. But you notice that there's one final thing that the Old Testament pointed towards. And this final thing makes the disciples witnesses in a whole new way. Because we read there in verses 47 to 49 that the Old Testament Scriptures had also foretold that this good news of repentance and forgiveness in the name of Jesus should be proclaimed to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. The whole Old Testament had foretold that. Maybe Jesus reminded them of Genesis 12.3 where God promised to Abraham that in him, through his descendants, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Maybe Jesus pointed back to Isaiah 49 where the Lord calls His servant to bring Israel back to Him, but then also promises to make Him a light for the nations that God's salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. But notice that now, at this last thing that the disciples are witnessing, they're not just supposed to watch something that's happening. They are now called to play an active role in the process. They are to wait in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit But then they themselves are to go out and to be witnesses of these things to proclaim the name of Jesus and the salvation found in Him first in Jerusalem and to those from Israel and then to the ends of the earth. And brothers and sisters, this is not a one-generation gig. God's people are to pick up the mantle from these original disciples. We are given the same commission. This is why we encouraged one another just a few weeks ago in our missions conference to be praying daily for a burden for those who do not know Jesus. Praying for faithfulness to tell others about Jesus. Praying that the Lord would send more laborers into the harvest from our church. Our first step, as we said then, was to be praying diligently. But then we are also supposed to be ready. I love the way Peter puts it. Always ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. I think being always ready to give an answer for the hope that we have means to intentionally look for opportunities to share Christ, as well as to be ready when those unexpected doors open that we would not have foreseen, trusting the Spirit's power to work and bring His people to salvation. But as we come to the end of this passage this Easter morning, we have such a great reason for joy. Let the brass ring out. Let us sing with joy. Christ is risen. And the disciples were witnesses of all these things. 
But as we read from God's Word in Luke 24 this morning, we become heirs of all that the disciples had witnessed in person 2,000 years ago. We don't have a 25,000 square foot banner. We don't have a proclamation 10 stories high. But we have God's Word. God's Word which tells us that Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. We have God's Word that shows us the gracious heart of Jesus towards sinners. The gracious heart of the living Jesus who comforts those who suffer. We have the Word of God which explains how Jesus fulfills the Scriptures and is the central point in the plan of God to bring salvation to the whole earth to anyone who puts their trust in Him. And we have the Word of God which calls us now to proclaim this name of Jesus to the end of the earth. And so it's appropriate for us this Easter morning to declare we are all witnesses. Witnesses not of some athletic achievement, but witnesses of the greatest events in history. And may our response be the same as the disciples, to marvel with unexpected joy at the great things that God has done for us through the risen Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Father, how we thank You for what You've done for us in Jesus Christ. How we thank You that You have written these things down in Your Word. How we thank You for the disciples who were witnesses of these things in history. And how we thank You that through Your Word and by Your Spirit, we can witness these things now. May we be faithful to proclaim the name of Jesus. And may you give our hearts joy in your risen and living presence with us to the glory of your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.